Welcome to the Drive with Dave podcast. I'm Dave Miller at drivewithdave.com. I get to drive some of the fastest, coolest, sexiest cars on the planet. Ever since I bought my first Ferrari, I've been immersed in the global car community. Now I travel the world uncovering the hidden gems in luxury transportation and connecting with extraordinary car enthusiasts. Join me as I find the most exotic cars, meet the owners, and get the behind-the-scenes stories of the world's most exclusive rides. Football is my favorite sport, hands down. I've always loved the game, college and pro, and I, I never really had the opportunity to sit down with an ex-NFL player. Until now. Recently, over a couple of beers, I had an eye-opening conversation with my friend Brett Miller, and he talked about the highs and lows of playing 10 years in the National Football League and lessons learned along the way, both football and life, and how discipline both on and off the field has helped him succeed in his current career. A native of California, Brett has lived in uh, all over Los Angeles, from Marina Del Rey to Beverly Hills. He attended the University of Iowa, where he earned all Big Ten honors and was drafted by the Atlanta Falcons. Brett also played for the San Diego Chargers, now of course, you know, here in Los Angeles, and the New York Jets. After his 10 years in the NFL, he transitioned from pro football to sports broadcaster as the anchor for KTLA 5 here in Los Angeles. Now with almost 20 years of experience, Brett Miller is one of the top real estate agents at Douglas Elliman South Bay and is an integral part of their sports and entertainment division. His professional career allowed him to build relationships that have served him well in real estate, now helping fellow athletes from superstars to rookies finding homes in the Los Angeles area. And by the way, Brett's full biography is on my website. Um, Brett Miller, welcome to the show. <laughs> Brett, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for stopping by. So even with the same last names, no one is ever going to take us as brothers. I'm five foot seven, 155 pounds, and you are uh, six seven, about two sixty now. So just a mere shadow of my former self. <laughs> so, so Brett, do you have trouble on commercial airplanes? Yeah, I mean, come on, I, I hate flying commercial, and sometimes the people at the desk will have pity on me when they see me and they'll upgrade me. Or if I get the, the boarding pass now, you have to be in the A group on Southwest. Uh, I'll get in the, be in the A group and uh, the flight attendants will be like guarding those seats. And when they see me, they're like, come back here, come back here. But if I get in late and I'm flying more than two hours, I'm like a, the pretzel man when I get out of there. It's ridiculous. When I met you, I thought this guy has got to have trouble in sports cars, airplanes, um, anything smaller than a walk-in closet. I'm right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So high school, college, and then the pros. Let's go backwards um, and start with the NFL draft because I, I, I'm always confused about it. And tell me how the NFL drafts players, please. Well, I think it's a little, it's, it's probably, you know, very similar to the way it was when I was coming out, you know, today. But uh, it, it's a pretty long process. They do a lot of investigating in the players. Of course, they have scouts that watch them from, the time to become a, a person of interest for the league. And then uh, they actually send people out to do background checks on them. They talk to five of your best friends to see what kind of personality you have. Uh, at least when I was coming out, that's how they did it. They talked to your family. They would talk to people at your school. Um, and then uh, they had combines. So uh, there were three combines when I was coming out. And they would- Remind me about a combine. 
the combine is where they take the top 300 players in the country uh, and they bring them in and they do physical tests like 40 times, vertical jump, uh, bench press, strength stuff. And uh, the, I mean, I'm telling you, you want to feel like a piece of meat, a piece of cattle. You go from team to team and, the doc and you go out on the doctor's tables and they like look at your knees, they look at your elbows, they look at your jaw. They make you stand in front of this chart that's as big as this wall, but it's got a grid on it height and, and you know your wingspan and but you got to stand in front of that wall in like a jock so it's a pretty thorough investigation to get to that point and then uh then, then they draft you then they call you up so when i watch it on tv and i watch because sometimes i think it's become boring seriously it, it has it's but boring. the whole process of the draft is what well, they, they, try and, they try and bring players and they're going to be able to contribute, if not immediately, at long term. Uh, it's, it's, and there's so many, so many unknowns. You know, it's so, you know, skill can be very fleeting at that level. There's a lot of guys they make mistakes on because there's some intangibles that I think uh, allow you to play at a professional level at, at that, that razor-fine line of, uh, you know, emotion and brains. I don't think there's a real formula to the draft unless somebody's just so ridiculously talented. Mm -hmm. But the step up from Division One football to the NFL, it's like going, instead of going from here to the street corner, it's like going from here to the moon. The difference is, yeah, I mean, I was flabbergasted. I was just, I was shocked. I was like, I don't know about this. So over a couple of beers, <laughs> as we did just a couple of weeks ago, you had talked about your career playing at the University of Iowa. Right. So you had a great, great uh, career at Iowa, but then you got drafted. But you were a little unhappy, if memory serves, with how the draft went for you personally. What happened? Yeah, I was more than a little unhappy. There was a guy that, that was a year ahead of me that got drafted by an unnamed team, and he's a friend of mine, so I'm not going to say his name or his team. But he was a number one pick. Uh, we had very similar careers, and I was projected to be a number one my senior year coming out. But because of his lack of success as a number one pick at that team, I dropped down. So then I, I had been called by Pittsburgh, and my agent told me that the Steelers were going to draft me in the third round. I was like, oh, that'll be okay, right? Well, so the, the Pittsburgh was on the clock, and I hadn't got my call. So they passed, obviously, and then it went all the way through the third round and through the fourth round, and I got up and left. And I was like, I'm not playing football. I'm just not, because I think, you know, over those beers, I told you a little bit about my background, mm -hmm. and I wasn't that guy in high school or Pop Warner football. I didn't play Pop Warner football, and I played high school football just because it was a thing to do. And then I took two years off and roamed around Hawaii and did some other things. So I wasn't the guy that grew up wanting to be an NFL football player. So I was just going to walk. And then, you know, uh, my wife at the time and my agent came running out. They go, come back, come back, come back. Dan Henry's on the phone from the Falcons. So I uh, got on the phone with Dan, and he... Uh, said, you know, hey, Brett, we really want to bring you in here. And I was like, yeah, whatever. I was kind of a jerk to him. <laughs> and, uh, I bet you're still remembered. <laughs> oh, yeah, Dan's a great guy. He was, we became really good friends. And, you know, that's another thing about at that level, the, you know, you're a man at that point. You're not in high school or college, and you're expected to be responsible and self-starting and take care of business. So the relationships between the coaches become um, a little bit different than they are in college, if that makes sense to you. They're... they're uh, they're very uh, close, close relationships. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So 
again, I keep going back to this conversation we had because it was absolutely amazing when you talked about how easy it was for you and how simplified everything was in physically and mentally. There were absolutely no challenges going to rookie camp. Is that right? Yeah, right on the money, Dave. No, it was, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. It was, um, uh, I don't know if, if you want to hear the whole story that I told you because it was pretty lengthy, but uh, myself uh, and uh, uh, I won't say his name again, but another Iowa football player uh, was a free agent and we went to the first mini camp and it was just rookies. So it was just all the guys that I had seen, you know, all the same level players that I had seen in college. So it was pretty a, a pretty cool camp, but it was pretty rough because the stakes are high, right? And we just had helmets and t-shirts on, helmets and jerseys, and we were doing everything live. So, you know, a, a football helmet and the tip of your shoulder full speed like, kind of stings a little bit. So it was rough. Uh, and then we went back for three days of rookie uh, minicamp, and then they brought the vets in. Uh, and I thought I was pretty hot stuff until the vets came in. Dun, dun, dun. I was like, you know, it, it wasn't a size thing, and it wasn't, uh, it, it wasn't a perception because, you know, I was certainly as big or bigger than any of them. But, uh, man, the speed the speed and the knowledge and the experience, it was, uh, it was another gear. It, it just, it was, and it was so fast and it was, the systems were complex. The playbook was nuts. Uh, you know, a college playbook is maybe that thick and the pro playbook is like that thick. It's a big binder and, you know, you have two or 300 base plays and then all those plays have four or five options and variations. You got to know them all. So it was, a uh, yeah, it was hard. In training camp, my rookie training camp was the hardest thing I'd ever done in my life. I, everybody, all the rookies there, it's like after been in about two or three weeks and there was four weeks to go, every day we'd walk from our hotel rooms across the parking lot in Suwannee, Georgia, down to get taped or whatever it was. And every day all of us were like, man, should we just like bounce and get out of here? Is it really worth it? And uh, it was tough. Brett, tell me about a day in rookie camp. You get up and you go to bed, but what fills your time in between those two things? Well, so you, so you get up early uh, and you have breakfast. So it's like a, a training table type breakfast, like a cafeteria, because you're all staying in dorms or hotels or wherever it is. Uh, and then you have to go from there to uh, an early meeting. You Generally, it was about 8 o'clock in a meeting for about an hour, hour and a half. Then you had to go get taped. Then you had to be on the field for two and a half hours. Then you got off the field uh, and you went and had lunch. And then they gave you an hour break. And then you'd go back to the facility for more film and uh, installation. And then you'd go get taped again. And then you'd go out for two and a half hours. And then you'd come back in and do an hour in the weight room. And then you'd go to dinner. And then we'd go have a couple of beers. And then we'd be done at 11 o'clock. That's a long day. It was in seven weeks of that, seven days a week. And the two and a half hour practices were not like touchy-feely. They were live, full go, you know, let the dogs out. It wasn't like they are now. We were in full pads twice a day for seven weeks. And, you know, I'm like so many, so many guys, so many friends of mine that we've always, you sit around at a bar, and you're talking about our favorite sport, football, and you're thinking, oh, I wonder, could I take a snap? 
could I take a, could I take a, could I, could I do a, could I throw a pass and have somebody catch it? Could I take a hit? And I understand when I look at people like you and I watch TV, I couldn't and I don't want to. Man, you know, uh, uh, when I first started doing the uh, uh, working on the sidelines for the NFL at the Chargers games, uh, you know, I was watching the guys, and it's a lot softer game now. It's uh, you know, they're I don't they're I don't know how to describe it because they're so overly prepared physically with diet and training and all that stuff, but it's just it's just uh, I don't know. It'd be like putting a governor on a Formula One car because you didn't want to crash it. So it'd be like Lewis Hamilton in when in his rookie his first championship year, and then now because he's so good and he's so valuable, we're going to slow his car down so we know he's not going to run it into a wall, and that's kind of what they've done. And I understand it preserves the health of the players. I mean, I could have played 20 years if if I played under the rules now, but so I went to one of the head scouts for the Chargers, and I was like, dude, I'll give you a quarter if you pay me one game check. I said, I could go, I could make it through one more quarter. Because those guys now are making uh, per game what I made a year, sometimes three or four times. So it's, and they have more longevity and they're taken care of and, you know, God bless them. I'm not taking anything away from them, but yeah, you could do it nowadays, I'll bet. But you know what the thing is? And, and I'll reiterate it, it's not how big everybody is in that league, even when I was playing. It's how fast they are. So it's guys my size that are running four sixes and four sevens, and the guys, the defensive backs, who are bringing the wood are running four two and four three. That's some velocity, and that's what it is. It's just, I mean, when you get lit up by somebody running that fast, they don't have to be that big. But see, I have to tell you right now, I would bring velocity at five seven, 150-some pounds. Yeah. I'm telling you, if I was running away from guys like you, you'd be surprised how fast I could. Yeah, you know, one of my best friends, Chris Hale, played for the Bills. Uh, we went to the same junior college out here, Glendale Junior College, and he played with Jim Kelly the years that they went to the Super Bowl. He's a little dude. He's like 5'8". Uh, I think when he played, he played at about a buck 65, buck 70. But the guy runs a 4'2", and the guy has like a 40, I want to say a 47-inch vertical. That's over four feet straight up. And when they measure your vertical, you're not allowed to take a step. It's flat-footed. So I think... Most of the people that play in that league are like freakishly athletic, and that's why it's so fast. You know, if I went back and looked at your statistics, and I'm not talking physical at all, uh, one to me really stands out, and that is playing 10 years in the NFL. How that? How did? How did you do it? Just, I mean, you know, just, you know, a lot of. Uh, you know, I don't want to toot my own horn, but I trained really hard. Uh, I got fortunate. You know, I, I stayed fairly injury-free. You know, I've had tons of surgeries, but... Uh, How many? Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know, uh, more than 10. Um, but, you know, I had a couple of real bad knee injuries, but I just uh, was fortunate that my body held together and I was able to keep, you know, the same speed and... and and as you, as you are in that league longer and longer, especially at offensive line, it's hard to find big guys that move like little guys. Mm -hmm. And that's what offensive linemen are. They're gigantic guys that can move like a little guy. But there's so much knowledge that you acquire coming up year after year playing offensive line that sometimes experience will carry you versus 
some young gun that comes in that's like a specimen, mm -hmm. but he can't play. My, and I was taught that lesson well my rookie year, uh, I had to play Jack Youngblood from the Rams. And I was like, I watched that guy growing up. I got to play Jack Youngblood. And the guy was not very big, uh, so, so quick. But man, that guy, he had the tricks. I mean, he had like, he was a magician, right? I was like, where are you going? You know, grabbing him. I was just tackling him. So uh, there's a lot of nuances to the game. There's a lot of sure. intangible. There has to be. There are. And you know what, Brett? You had also shared something with me, and I thought it was something that really made me think, and I've thought about it a number of times when you said it, and it was playing through the pain. And I understand when guys that are two, three hundred pounds are running full, full steam into each other, there's got to be so much pain. But one of the things that I remember in the conversation was you saying that you would play through the pain and you would have to because there were a thousand other people, and there was 10,000 other yeah. guys standing behind yeah. you that would kill for your job. That's true. That's true. Uh, the trainer, Jerry Ray, in Atlanta, my rookie year, he's like, I just want to tell all you rookies, you can't make the club in the tub. So if you get dinged or you get hurt, you come in here, we'll tape it up and we'll treat it, but you better get your ass back out of here. Well, what is make the club in the tub? Tell me. Like, so there's, uh, we had this gigantic jacuzzi in there. It was like a hot tub where guys would sit there after practice or in the morning or during training camp, it was filled with ice, so people would jump in there afterwards. But if you're in the tub, that means you're getting treatment in the training room and you're not on the field playing and you're not gonna make the club. So, you, I mean, you had to play through it, even in training camp. It's like if you, if you missed a week of training camp and you weren't a, a, a blue chip player, chances are they're gonna cut you. I've heard a lot about concussion protocol, and that certainly changed now from your days. Back there, concussion protocol meant you could play when you were. Hey, man, how many fingers am I holding up? <laughs> you, you'd go back out and play. So tell me, is this a good thing, a bad thing? How's it going to affect the future? Well, I think there's a, a couple ways to look at that. I think that you can take it too far, as they have in college football with that targeting rule. I think that's it's it's. Um, Oh, it's 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 just not doable. I mean, when you're moving at full speed and you got, you know, you're reaching an apex. I mean, and once you leave your feet or commit to that, you can't just like, oh, I'm going to turn my head or change the tra trajectory. I mean, it's when you commit, you commit. It's like driving your car into a corner. You got to hit your brake point. You can't like change the apex in the turn. So that's one way that I don't that I think it kind of detracts from the game. But I think it's good for the guys in the NFL because there's definite brain trauma that, that uh, occurs, especially on a position by position and year after year, uh, you know, it just, it just collects. And, and there's really no way to prevent that. They're never come up with a helmet that prevents the brain trauma because it's not the actual collision, it's the fact that your head stops so quickly your brain continues to travel and bounces off the inside of your skull. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that they had that concussion protocol. I think they might be doing it more as a PR deal and to protect themselves. I'm talking about the league, more of a PR deal and to protect themselves uh, from liability in the future because, uh, I mean, the game is, it's a very violent game played by very violent men uh, that that move hard and hit hard and uh you know I, I you know i think i told you over di over dinner too i said you know handing out unnecessary roughness penalties and on the football field at that level is like 
given speeding tickets at the Indy 500. So, Brett, professional athletes and cars just seem to go together, but I, I guess my question would have to be, uh, were you a car guy before football? Not really. I mean, you know, it's a uh, motorcycle guy. I used to race motocross when I was a kid and uh, still love motorcycles, and if it wasn't so dangerous, I'd probably be riding a street bike right now. Mm -hmm. And if I had more time, I'm sure I'd be on a dirt bike. But... Uh, cars didn't come into my life till I got into the league. Uh, my uh, my dad used to uh, make deals with me during Little League when I was playing Little League. And he was like, hey, if uh, for every home run you hit this year, I'm going to buy you a, a new part for your motorcycle, for your dirt bike. He was sorry he made that deal. But, uh, yeah, I used to love working on my bike in the, in the garage as a kid. and you know, uh, as, a, as a teenager? Oh, yeah, yeah. I was about, uh, I think when I started riding, I was 12. And then I got serious about it when I was about 14. And I don't know if you remember, but I had the, my shocks moved up and I had the EC Burt tuned a pipe on it and poured it and polished the heads. And uh, it, was, it was really fun. So I, I really treasure those days and I still like it. But a uh, car guy, uh, I think I became a, a car guy. I started to become a car guy. My dad, for whatever reason, I don't know, he went and bought this little junky TR4 convertible. I love those little cars. I had a TR here. It was a great car, and I used to love riding it with him, and I, and I liked the way it smelled, you know, that British leather in there. And So I, I've always liked cars. They're beautiful. Uh, a lot of my relatives had super high-end cars, you know, Jaguars, and uh, I think we spoke about that Ferrari. It's my favorite Ferrari. Is it a 265 GTB? Is that the one that... It's a 275. 275. It has a solid back, but it's like a 60s Ferrari with mm -hmm. the big wire wheels, the big... Fa yeah. So I've always appreciated them from afar. I could never afford them. Uh, but, you know, I loved riding in them. Uh, and then once I got through college with no car, you know, I rode the bus or rode my legs. Uh, then I started looking at cars again and... and uh, uh, you know, bought a couple pretty nice ones. I've had a couple pretty nice ones over my lifetime. So were cars, when you were a kid, were, was your first car, was it a hand-me-down? Was it you, you bought it? What was it? I bought it, and it was a Datsun pickup. And, and I put mag wheels on it with a, a torque twister uh, tires and a roll bar with KC lights and, and just drove the wheels off that thing. So I had side pipes on it, too. So it sounded good. Oh, yeah. And we, you know, if you rev it up at a light and turn the key off and turn the key back on, it would backfire and it sounded like a cannon going off. So we had fun. <laughs> I have always thought it unfair that professional athletes with all the money of God, or at least a lot of you guys, um, have the pick of the litter when it comes to cars. And when you, when you got drafted, when you did the stuff, you started making a little bit of money. Did that turn the key for you when it came down to uh, buying a car? Well, it did. And, you know, I wasn't really sure what kind of car I wanted to get. And, you know, back in my era, we weren't getting 15, 20 million dollar signing bonuses. So we really didn't make that much money. The first car that I bought uh, with my signing bonus as a rookie, I brought, bought a uh, uh, Camaro Z28 uh, HO, 5.0 HO with a five speed. It was black and gold. Uh, great car, but it was uh, it was a product of the 70s losing the muscle in muscle cars, so it was super underpowered, but it was fun to drive. 
drove the wheels off of that. And then uh, the next, when I redid my next contract, I got a, um, a red convertible Corvette with red leather interior. Now you're talking. It was pretty cool. It, it looked good. It was really underpowered. It was really a dog. Uh, then I went from that to uh, Eldorado Baritz. And then I started getting into really nice cars. I had a, a 944 Turbo. Gerald Riggs had a 930 Slant uh, that he put uh, racing gas in all the time. We'd tear around Atlanta. And no way could I keep up with him. I had a 944 Turbo, which was a great car. Super good handling and pretty quick. But, you know, I'd, I'd see Gerald put his foot in it and there flames come out of his exhaust because he had that race gas in there. Um, Bobby Butler had a 930. Uh, and those are the Widowmaker 930s, the four speeds that were, uh, you know, that had, uh, when that turbo came on, if you were in a corner and you didn't know how to drive, you'd go off the edge. Right around 4,000 RPM. It got a little dangerous. Snap your neck, yep. And then, uh, let's see, when I got out of the NFL, I that's when I really started kind of refining my cars. I've had uh, several Porsches, uh, Cayenne. I had a 993 that was lowered and had HREs on it. It was triple black and tinted, and that was a death car. That was probably the fastest car I've ever had. Uh, I had a Carrera 4. I had a, a Carrera Cab, a 1988 Carrera Cab. That was I loved that car. Uh, it was a that weird blue with blue interior. And of course, I pulled the, the, the instrument, the dash out, and put the white white dials on it. And I put a little Momo blue wheel. Uh huh. Right. Uh, I love that car. Uh, it was just like a toy car, but it was super fun. My buddy and I used to take that down to uh, Palm Springs to golf, and we'd leave the top down, and we had our shirts off. By the time we got out of the car, we'd have a big seatbelt white stripe across our chest. And you, and you say you're not a car guy, but you have certainly become one in your life. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think when you're younger, I think you're a car guy because you play with you know, all little boys are. You play with Hot Wheels, you make tracks, you have slot cars, because my dad and I used to go drive slot cars all the time. I don't know if you remember the huge tracks they had. I remember well. How much fun were those? And I think there's a few of them still floating around. So I was a car guy, but I had other interests. You know, sports kind of takes over when you're younger. You have you just want to get a car when you're, when you're in high school, when you get your license. You don't care what it is, if it's a jalopy. I mean, it was a Datsun pickup, for Christ's sake, right? Uh, and it was pea green. I mean, it was hideous. Guys now, still now, when I see them at reunions and stuff, they're like, God, I remember how ugly that truck was. Because there were some kids that rolled into school in old 442s. And uh, one of the guy's uh, parents, they had a body shop. So he had a, a killer K5 Blazer. So, uh, oh, I, I also, when I was in Atlanta, I went through a truck phase. And I got this old Chevy short bed pickup. And it, was, it had an 8-inch lift on it. It had 37-inch mud tires on it. The old lockout rims, no seat belts, and you could hear it coming for about a mile because of those tires. Uh, so I think I, I've always loved cars, but I never really got to the point where I was a huge uh, auto sports fan like I am now. It's been over the last maybe 10 years where I've become a fan of watching motorsports, you know, Formula One, Indy, NASCAR. Uh, you know, I still like wa watching uh, motorcycle races, the, uh, the, but the street races, those guys are insane. Uh, so I've always been a car guy, but I think, I think as, you, as we become older, I think we appreciate cars more. I don't know why, but I think we do. Brett, you, 
You mentioned a couple of cars that, and, and I'm sitting here with you right now, and you're a big guy. At 6'6", a couple of those cars seem to me you'd need, you'd need two of them, one to strap on either, either foot. Well, I had a guy who would take the seat rails on the Porsches and move them back two inches and then cut them down so they were shorter. So I fit in it really good. It was kind of a long reach to the shifter. But, uh, yeah, I had to have the seats modified, especially in that 993 because I couldn't shift it back into first because if you remember, it was over the left and back down. It always gets stuck on my thigh. Uh, the Corvette was a tight squeeze. As a matter of fact, my ex-wife, my wife at the time, sold it out from underneath me when I was in training camp because she was afraid I was going to kill myself in it because I had a hard time getting in it. You know, my knees were a quarter inch off of the dashboard, and it's got that real sharp edge dashboard. But it was a great car to, uh, to drive. Yeah, it would seem to me that you could wiggle into it, but maybe getting out of it was a little bit ungainly. Out of it, into it was a little bit tougher. Out of it was easy, but if, if it had ever crashed, I'd have been stuck in there like a, like a canned sardine. There's no way I could have gotten out of it. <laughs> um, okay, were your, were your teammates, the guys that you played football with, do you remember them as, as car guys too? The, um, let me see, I'm going to say probably... A select few were real car guys. Like I said, Gerald Riggs had the slant. Bobby Butler had a 930. Uh, God, there, was a couple, there was a couple of other Porsches. Lots of Broncos, lots of trucks. Lots of trucks. Yeah. Um, Cadillacs. Actually, Bill Freilich bought, uh, he was the number one pick my third year in the league. He was my guard. And, and uh, I think he had a, a Jaguar XJ12, you know, when they switched that body style. He loved that car, but that thing was broken every month. Uh, and I don't know how he got into it, but that, so that was a fairly exotic car for Atlanta at the time in the 80s. It's British, so it's going to break down a lot. Yeah, I guess. Uh, he had that car for a long time. Uh, but, you know, uh, in San Diego, I noticed more car guys because California, of course, is... Uh, the weather. Yeah, and it's a heavier concentration of car guys because you grow up looking at cars. Uh, New York, not so much because it was terrible weather, sorry. Uh, That's all right. And, uh, but Freeman McNeil pulled into training camp in a Lotus Esprit, and everybody was like, what is that car? I mean, it was gorgeous. It was the old Wedge. I think it was 1991 that he bought it, and it was white. After I got out of the league and I was in entertainment business is when I really got into to buying my own cars that were fast and, and would handle and uh, had sort of a reputation, and then I started watching racing, and I love it. So what are you driving for fun today? Well, if you're going to believe it or not, I, I got rid of my CL55 about a month ago, and I got a truck. I got a, a crew cab F-150 Lariat just because I, I got tired of wedging myself in and out of that thing. So uh, that's my practical car. So right now I'm in the market for, for a fun car. I don't know what I'll get. Uh, now that leads us down another road. What would you get? Or is it kind of the... Let me ask you, money, no object. So you weren't concerned about the money. You could write a check for literally anything in the world. Tell me about your dream cars. Uh, Carrera GT, 100%. You and a lot of other people. Yeah, that, that's, that's my dream car. You know, every, you know, there's all kinds of cars out there. You know, the Bugattis, the Aston Martins, the, the Bentleys, the Porsches, the uh, I'm, Ferraris. Yeah, they're, they're all out there. But I think a car that really kind of uh, just sets the bar for, for, uh, 
for a street legal race car, I think it's a Carrera GT. Uh, and, and I believe they've gotten really rare and really pricey. And I understand they're not that easy to drive, but. I think Paul Walker would, would prove that point, yeah. of course. Yeah, well, you know, that happens with a lot of these guys buy cars. When I lived in Florida, in Clearwater, I loved boats. That's something else that I loved. And I had about a 105 mile an hour cigarette in my backyard. Wow. And uh, the people, you know, that's a lot of responsibility to have your hands on the throttle of that thing with other people around, just like it is in a Courier GT, a Ferrari, anything that has great power and great speed demands great respect and great responsibility. And while I was down in Florida, I saw more guys get killed in their boats because they thought they could just go out, never have driven a boat before, and roll around at 85, 90 miles an hour on the water. And that's like going 180 on the street. Mm -hmm. And guys would fail to make a turn. And I saw a guy center punch a cigarette 31-foot bullet uh, at about 90 miles an hour into the seawall. I mean, everybody on board died. Wow. You know, Paul Walker, I'm sure he's a great driver and, and, you know, God rest his soul. But things happen when you're doing slot like football. I mean, and Paul was a Paul was a passenger. Somebody else was driving right. that car, and that Carrera GT. Racer, right? Yeah, pretty good driver. Yeah, so you know everything that everything that gives you a most ninety nine percent of things that give you a thrill and are an adrenaline rush uh, come with a risk. So, what do you identify the most? Okay, Carrera GT, Porsches. Well, what a spectacular car! What do you identify most when you think about California slash car? What do you think of? What, what comes to mind? Uh, I grew up with a kid. His name was Rick Marino, and his family owned the tuxedo store in Glendale. And he had, was it, a, was it a 69 Corvette convertible? Was that the one with the big block when they went to the Stingray body and had that nice little lip? I mean, that, I mean, that would be a car that I would like to cruise around in. Had, you know, I think I had around 375, 400 horsepower, mm -hmm. top down. It was bright yellow. Uh, just a car to go cruise in. And it's got to be a drop top, right? Got to be a drop top. Yeah, I've had several of those, and, and they're nice. They really are nice. Well, also, you, you grew up here. You, you spent probably your entire life, or most of your entire life here, or Hawaii. You have had to come across some great drives. Tell me about, where, if you had that Porsche Carrera, where, where, where would you, great drives? Uh, Mulholland would be one. Mulholland Highway, huh? Yep, and then uh, uh, the Kamehameha Highway in Hawaii. Um, and I got to tell you, you know, it, it doesn't sound very glamorous, but my daughters lived in Las Vegas. My youngest daughter still lives there. And I enjoyed the drive from here to Las Vegas at 5.30 in the morning because as the sun was coming up and there was nobody out there, you could roll along at about 130, 140 for a couple hours, and, and it was just so pleasant. So, you know, straight line, you know, curves are great, but, you know, they get tired after an hour and a half or so. And, and to be able to just drive and watch the sun come up in the desert where it's beautiful, that's one of my favorite drives, too. I wouldn't like to do it every day, but I certainly don't mind it when I do do it. It seems to me the CHP is not so pleasant, though, in Barstow. They're not. They're not. But they've always been really nice to me. Thank goodness. You know, I think I told you when we first met, I went by a highway patrol at about 145 in that Porsche. And I didn't see him till the last second because he was hiding behind one of the bridge things. And I just started pulling over 
And about 20 minutes later, he caught up and he was upset, but, um, he, 20 minutes, 20 minutes later. Yeah. He let me walk. Cause I just, I just coasted to a stop cause you know, I probably could have kept going, but you can't run a helicopter. No. Uh, and there's nowhere to hide there. So, uh, for some reason or other, you know, I've always been very respectful of, of, of policemen and, and I have a lot of great friends that are policemen. Sure. And he did the right thing. You know, he's like, what the hell are you doing? And I was like, well, it's 530 in the morning. The sun's coming up. There's nobody on the road. This is a 200 mile an hour car. It's more than capable of, of what I'm doing without putting anybody at risk. So he came, you know, he wanted my driver's license and my registration. And he made me get out of the car and stand next to the car when he was back in his car. He was back there for about a half hour. Uh, and for some reason he came up and he goes, well, here's your stuff. And he goes, I want you to do me a favor. And I was like, well, anything you want. He goes, slow down, keep it under a hundred <laughs> and get the hell out of here. <laughs> so, and I was gone. So, uh, but you know, that said, I don't, I, it's, uh, I don't think that many people really have an appreciation or, or, or have a need to have that adrenaline pumped into your body quite frequently. And, and fast cars do that for me. Fast cars, jumping out of planes do it, boats do it, motorcycles do it, everything does it. And I think people are constantly searching for that. And I think owning a fast car, owning a pretty car, driving a fast car, driving on a track, I think that's a, a big thing. If you can wake up in the morning and look forward to getting into your car because you love that car, it's a big deal. It's a very big deal, and it's one of the reasons I, I think we speak the same language when it comes to this, Brett. I, I, I really do. Um, yeah, uh, nice to hear your points on, on automotive, uh, automotive <laughs> right. fun. Yeah, right. that's what it's all about. Right. Uh, I'll tell you what, the one that my dad, uh, he loved that little TR4, and he was a big guy like me, so he was like an like a elephant on a, on a skateboard in that thing. But I was following home from him from work. Uh, I think it was during the meat cutter strike when he hired me as the the uh, the meat manager for the for the store. I was making a ton of dough, and it was on Sunset. It was Sunset or Santa Monica. I can't remember. But I was behind my dad in my in the Datsun pickup, and he turned a corner, and I guess the knockoff had unrolled itself, and the car like did a wheelie because the wheel came off and rolled under the car, and it went up and just slammed down to the ground. Uh, He's going slow. There's no no risk or anything, but yeah, that car was. Uh, I did get to drive that because we still had it, and it was fun. I would steal. I used to. Uh, before I got my driver's license, uh, I would. Uh, I stole one of the car keys off my mom's car ring, and I went down and had the, a duplicate made and put her key back on. And when they were gone out on a date, I would go out and get the family car and go drive around Glendale when I was like 14 years old. But you know, there's a different. It was a different time. You could do that back then. You know, so but let me let me segue into you left football, either under your own volition or your body's, or uh, you, you hung it up and you retired, and yet you stayed in sports. Um, tell me a little bit about your next job after football. Well, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do, uh, and about halfway through my my career, I had had dinner with a director, uh, a movie director, a film director, and he's like. What do you think? What are you going to do when you retire? And I was like, I'm not going to retire. You know, it's my fifth year, and you're 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 bulletproof in your own mind, right? You're going to play for 50 years, 50 at least. And you can't have a you can't. I don't. I think it's very difficult 
to succeed at something that's so hard to attain and demands such commitment, I don't think you can have a plan B because I think having a plan B takes away from your focus of achieving your goals. Right. How am I going to get there? Right. And what you don't say, what if I don't get there? You just say, I'm, I'm going to get there. Right. Period. So, um, Anyways, long story short, I got kind of roped into entertainment, so I did movies and commercials and television shows. Uh, and then... Uh, Weren't you on a horseback or a bull or I something? Was on a horse for, my first thing was a Kentucky Fried... Was it a Kentucky Fried Chicken? It was when they had that mayor of the whatever it was. Yeah, and I had to ride a horse through the drive through and they didn't believe I could ride a horse on the edition. I didn't know what I was doing, and I was like, I'm not going to lie to you about being able to ride a horse because I'm going to have to ride a horse. It's like you can't fake that. So that, that part of my life got to a point where I, I wrote and produced a television show with a buddy from uh, the NFL, played in Nebraska and in Philly and with the Jets, Keith Newbert. Uh, and we got that shot, produced it, shot it, uh, didn't get picked up and it was so stressful that I was like, that's it for show business because it's not fun anymore. It'd be like a player dealing with the owner on a football team, I was like, nah. So I stopped and I didn't know what I was gonna do and then I was at a uh, AYSO soccer uh, match in Brentwood with AYSO. Uh, what is that? The, it's American Youth Soccer Association. Got it. Something like that. Uh, with a friend of mine, and uh, so this guy walks up and he goes, "Hey, are you Brett Miller?" And I was like, "Yeah." He, you know, we introduced each other, and he said, "Have you ever thought about doing sports?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, kind of. You know, thought about it." And he said, "Well," he said, "Do you think you can read a prompter?" And I was like, "Probably." <laughs> uh, so he goes, why don't you throw on a suit? He goes, you know, I'm the, the general manager of KTLA. I think you'd, you'd be perfect for it. And I was like, okay. So I threw on a suit and went down to KTLA and sat there with, uh, you know, the anchors at the time. And it was super fun. Like, easy peasy, right? Like, hey, Brett Miller with you today in sports. You're reading it, right? Just with a little bit of juice. So. So I said, thanks, man. I thought it was just fun. He, I didn't think it was an audition. So I, he had me come back three or four more times. And I was like, dude, what are you doing? He goes, are you enjoying it? I go, yeah. He goes, okay, so we're going to hire you. And I was like, you are? Yeah, he said, yeah. So uh, he hired me for, I mean, it was dirt cheap because, you know, I didn't have any experience. And he said, prove yourself and I'll pay you. And I was like, great. No problem with that. Uh, but I do have to tell you that the first broadcast, I was sitting next, next to Lynette Romero super nice woman treated me everybody there was great i loved everybody she looked at me and i was uh, you can tell the story yes yeah, she was sitting here and so i had my suit on and i was sitting there and i had a, a glass of water because my mouth was like dry as dirt and i picked up the glass of water and i was like this now this is after doing all the auditions like this is no big deal what a piece of cake took it up and, I, and just as i'm about to sip it lynette looks over at me and she goes don't blow it. And I was like, oh, because it's live. And uh, I made it through. Uh, and I actually, besides doing live theater when I was acting, because it was, you know, you had to deliver, uh, it was, I really enjoyed sports broadcasting because you were under the gun, you had to deliver, and, uh, you know, you had people watching you, putting you under the gun. So I really loved doing it. And how long did you do that, Brett? I did that about five years. Five years. Uh, Vinny, uh, Malcolm, the GM, had uh, moved to another uh, station. So we were uh, 
didn't have a general manager, so I couldn't renegotiate my contract. And then the guy that came in had his own agenda, kind of like when a GM comes into an NFL team, he brings his own players with him. Mm -hmm, sure. And I said, listen, I've been doing this a long time. Uh, you know, I have to do other things to keep my, myself alive, you know, as far as businesses. And you're going to have to pay me fair market value or I'm going to walk. And they're like, nobody walks from the number two sports market in the country. I was like, bye. And I just left. And then uh, my agent uh, was shopping me around and it was a... Uh, uh, I'd sold my place in Marina Del Rey and moved to Beverly Hills. And then I, then I left Beverly Hills and I was going to move back to Venice. And one of my friends said, hey, why don't you try Redondo Beach? And I was like, mm, I don't think so. It's uh, a little too vanilla for me. I like a little bit more diversity, a little bit more spice, right? Uh, I was going to go to Venice, but I said, I'll try it because I'll only be here two or three months. So it took longer than I thought for my agent to get me a gig. And uh, she had me two. She had one in uh, Boston and one in Florida. And I'd been here about six months, and I was like, you know, I don't really want to leave because, you know. It's a nice town, isn't it? Well, and you know what else it is, too? I'm not going to make Bryant Gumble money. And I'm not going to make, you know, because I'm going to go there, and then, you know, in five years, they're going to hire somebody half my age for half my salary, and then I'm going to, like, have to start over again. And I'm tired of starting over. So I'm going to, you know, stay here in, in Southern California, in the South Bay, and, uh, it was a great decision because I love it here. And, and, it's, and that was a transition for you, too, because I know uh, now you're in the sports and entertainment department at Douglas Elliman Real Estate, which, as we both know, is one of the premier real estate companies in the world. And you must get used to supersized pro football homes with the people you know. You spend so much of your time um, with... Uh, young athletes, older athletes, retired athletes, and I think you had said from the veterans to the rookies, they're just like us in that they need homes. Yeah. But uh, how, are they different than, than the normal people like, like me? If I go out to my, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say both, but okay. I don't want you to step on toes because no, I know no, you're no, still respected. I won't, I won't, and, I won't say any names. Uh, it depends on the person and the house, but the, the, the thing that's most important to me I mean, some of those guys have houses that are just bananas. Uh, you know, you went to, uh, I know that you were at one of my listings down uh, a little further south here. Mm -hmm. uh, and, in Redondo. Yes. And, uh, you know, that is a home that could be typical, but now you also have to take into account, this is Southern California. So if you're making $15 million a year here in Southern California, to buy a house like that, it's going to cost you $12 million. So that's not enough money. You're not making enough money. But if you're making $15 million in, I don't know, I mean. Uh, Chicago. Tennessee. Yeah, or Chicago. I mean, for, to get a, a 10,000 square foot house in Chicago or Tennessee or, uh, I mean, Tampa, you're going to pay, I don't know, three to five million maybe? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Dallas, you can buy a 100-acre ranch for, uh, a million. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the rub. And these guys don't realize, and I think it takes them, I think with, with, without exception, it takes them years to realize this. And sometimes they don't. Sometimes by the time they realize it, it's too late. When you're finished with your career, that faucet is turned off. It's not like, oh, it's going to drip for a little while. It's mm -hmm. like it's done. So if you're, if you're making Let's just say five million a year. If you're making five million a year, that's a relatable number. 
and you're spending $5 million a year, which most of them do, because you're, you're in trouble. Five is 3.5 after taxes, right? Maybe three-ish. Yeah. Uh, you're done. And how are you going to maintain that lifestyle? So I try and tell the people that I work with who are in sports and not so much entertainment because I'm not ex as exposed to that as I, I used to be. Uh, I try and, and advise them to say, listen, you know, there's no reason you can't treat yourself right. I mean, enjoy some of that money you're making because you deserve it and you worked hard for it. But just put some of it away, you know, and, and I'm not saying put it in a CD or in the bank. I mean, buy a strip mall, buy a car wash, buy an apartment building, you know, and you don't have to buy it in L.A. either. You can buy an apartment building in uh, Seattle or wherever and just set yourself up with, for some residual income. So when it does come time to retire, if you want to really retire and buy a fishing boat and do that, you can. And, and I, just, I just think that, you know, I made that mistake. A lot of guys made that mistake, so it's, it's something I try and bring to the table, and uh, those guys do trust me because, uh, you know, I'm one of them. It's a very tight fraternity, a small fraternity, so it vets me. Sure. So, uh, you know, and it's, uh, you know, I can't tell them what to do, but I, you know, I have told the guys, I said, I'm not, I'm not going to be your agent on that because I don't think it's the right call for you. And they're like, well, what are you talking about? Don't you? I was like, I don't, that commission's not important enough to me. It's like, I'd rather see you make the right decision. I don't want to, you know, I'm not your agent. Your agent doesn't give a damn about you as a person. He's going to charge you 15% regardless, sometimes 20. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm not going to let you make a, I, I'm not going to be part of you making a bad decision. I've told you what I think. You're not, I'm telling you not to do it. But if you want to move forward, you move forward. I'm not going to facilitate that. Interesting. You mentioned bad decisions and making mistakes. And you, just like everybody else in the world, has have made them. 100%. Both maybe Still in do. your maybe in your career in the past, maybe in football and everything like that. But you have the the the, the wonderful uh, ability to look in hindsight and say, I wish I would have done this differently, or I wish I would have done that differently. And I always ask successful people, Brett, my God, you've been by any any metric successful in your life. So. It, it, First, I know you have a couple of daughters. I do. And you have probably sat down at some time, whether whether it's just around the house or out somewhere or whatever it is, and like like dads do or like like people pass on to their their kids or whatever. What what have you said to your daughters that you hope will make a difference? The the tough things that you've learned in life. Well, I mean, I don't know if I've if I've said so much, and you know, my daughters have turned out to be stellar women. They're the best things that I've ever done. They, they're irreplaceable, and they've just made my life so much better than I ever thought it could be. They're adults. They're 30 and 28, mm -hmm. and I have two grandsons now. John and Haley and I, we did most of our talking in the water because we were always in the water in Marino. We were boogie boarding. We were skateboarding. Uh, and, and I tried to teach them by example, by being the best kind of person I could be, by keeping my word, by not, you know, doing the wrong thing. And... I, of course I would discipline them. I wasn't a slack parent like that. But I, uh, on the other hand, I wasn't a helicopter parent either. It's like, they're kids. I've got my eye on them. And if I see them do something wrong, I'm going to correct it and make sure it doesn't happen again. But God bless both of them. I mean, I never had one bad day with them. Not one. And, and to this day, they, I mean, they're the reason I wake up. Lucky you, because I talk with other parents. That's not yeah, always the same. Lucky. 
But I'm going to mention one more thing. So, Brett, uh, again, I ask this question all the time, too. People I interview, people I sit down and talk to, people I meet. If, as a successful person, if you had to sit down with a guy or girl, young boy or girl coming out of college, 21, 22 years old, your hindsight in business and in life and all that stuff, what, what would you want to pass on to somebody that you thought was maybe a shortcut, something that you learned perhaps a hard way that you would want to pass on to somebody? Business, personal, what? Well, I think if I can put a, a combination spin on that, you know, when I was, when I was drafted and coming out of college, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't have a plan B. But I think that you have, that I, you should be more fluid than I was because I had put all my eggs in one basket, which is fine. And fortunately, I put them in the right basket. That's right, knock on wood. But uh, I think you have to be more, more fluid and, and adaptable because you, know, you learn through athletics and through business and through life that everybody falls and they fall repeatedly. And it's not the fall that's important. It's being able to get up and move forward again. Uh, you know, Vince Lombardi, I think, was a guy who coined that phrase. Mm -hmm. But um, I think that if I had allowed myself sometimes when I was playing, uh, you know, if, if, if the coaches got down on me or something happened, if I hadn't been so afraid of getting traded or cut, if, if uh, because, you know, I think I put too much value on just my, the athletic part of my uh, abilities, you know, because I had other abilities, I still do, but I think that if I'd have been more fluid and said, you know what, if this doesn't work out, something else is going to come up because I think I, but it's, it's kind of like the catch 22. It's like I put so much important on, importance on playing in the NFL that I couldn't think about doing anything else. But by doing that, I didn't allow myself the door to open, you know, if that door closes, the other one opens. But I didn't allow myself the flexibility or the fluidity to go, okay, you know what, time for the next deal. Because it's, you know, it's just, uh, I think that's, I think that sometimes the, the effort that you have to put forth to achieve fantastic success at whatever your chosen field is, I think sometimes that that puts blinders on you because you kind of you can't be distracted. You have to be so focused, and I think that kind of ham you know hamstrings people because sometimes if you'd taken those blinders off, you said, you know what, I've been in in the league four or five years, and they come in. They, you know, they used to come in every uh, training camp. The FBI would come in, the CIA would come in, Secret Service would come in, and say, hey, if any of you guys want a job when you're done or if you get fired, we'll take you in, no questions asked. We'll put you in the academy. And looking back, it's like, maybe that's what I should have done, you know? Maybe that first argument that I had with Jim Hannafin, where I told him what I can't tell you on camera, on the sidelines, when I, uh, it, was, it was, I think it was the first argument that was caught on TV between a player and a coach, and we were screaming at each other. Uh, and, it's, and that's when I got traded to San Diego the next year. Amazing how that happened. Amazing how that happened. What a coincidence, right? <laughs> uh, but, you know, Dan Henning was the head coach, so that's why I wound up there at San Diego. But, uh, you know, what would have happened if I had gone into the FBI or, you know, the CIA or Secret Service or firemen or police or whatever? You know, you just never know. So I think, I think the sword that cuts both ways is you have to be so focused on looking forward and succeeding that you don't allow yourself 
to see other options that could come into play that in the long run might be a better play. Does that make sense to you? I think that's a lesson for everybody. Actually, that makes a lot of sense, and I thank you for sharing it. But I did want to say that I left the last, the most, the meat of the questions as the last one. When can you get me into SoFi Stadium? <laughs> I'll try. I mean, I, I, it's, so, it's so strange going to that stadium and watching the games. It's like watching a scrimmage. But I can tell you, there are people floating around in there. I don't know how they got in, but uh, I think what they're doing throughout the league is they're waiting to see if the teams cross-contaminate. And if, and if they don't, I, I mean, some of the games I've seen, they've let in a limited number of fans. I think they're doing that at that college level, too. And I just understand Florida said you can pack the stadiums now, that governor out there. But that's Florida. That's Florida. So I, I don't know. You know, our, our, our governor and mayor who have a different outlook and a different approach. And I can't – I don't know when they're going to open it up. You know, I know and, that the NFL is losing a ton of money because of it. And, you know, Brett, I was just kidding you about that, even though football is my favorite sport in the entire world. I've never been into SoFi yet. Oh, my God, would I love to go. And I'm not, putting, I'm not putting you into a tough spot. I'll get you in. I'd love to get you in. Uh, and, and, and if I could do it, uh, I'll get you in as soon as I can. Brett Miller, it's, it's always interesting. And when we talked a couple of weeks ago, I said, I just have to sit down with this guy and get a little bit of life's lessons. Uh, I do realize that maybe due to my size, even though I'm fast, I should be a fan and not on the, on the field. <laughs> a lot of big guys driving garbage trucks. <laughs> Brett Miller, ex-NFL, ex-sportscaster here in Los Angeles, and now segued so, so well into the real estate, selling to all the football players, the entertainment people in Los Angeles. And sell the fans, too. <laughs> and the fans, of course. Thank you very much for your time, sir. My pleasure. Thanks for coming in, Dave. Thanks for joining us on the Drive with Dave podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to hear and see more about exotic sports cars, you can connect with us at drivewithdave.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Also, catch us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks again.